Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 53 through 63. Now, before I read it to you, if you were with us last week, you remember how it was a hard, hard study. As God recounted to the nation of Israel their history from his point of view, and he used words like prostitute and whore, and it was tough. Tonight is like the exact opposite. Because as always, whenever God brings his judgment and he brings his warnings and all that, there's also mixed in with it hope if you'll turn in repentance. And tonight we're going to be looking at the end of this chapter where he then gives them the picture of the future hope that's available. So Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 53 through 63. God says, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, they shall return to their former state. And Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state. And you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister, Sodom, a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria, and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. And we're going to spend our whole study tonight right here. There is a lot here. But look closely. It's, God says, I'm going to restore your fortunes. Now, as you see here, and we'll come back to that later in our study, he says he's going to restore the fortunes of Sodom and Samaria. And remember, Samaria was the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes. Sodom, you hopefully remember who Sodom is, was the city to the south, which is in the area of the Dead Sea, which God judged and destroyed because of their wickedness. But he also then tells the nation of Israel, I'm also going to restore your fortunes in their midst. So what I want to do to start off with, after all this condemnation that God has brought to them, as we looked at last week, he then says to the nation of Israel, I'm going to restore your fortunes. I don't know how many of us really realize this, so I'm going to take a little bit of time tonight to show you those, that phrase of God, I'm going to restore your fortunes, is all throughout the Bible. I'm not going to show you all of them, but I'm going to show you a lot of them so that you will hopefully be able to understand God means what he says. So let's go back to the book of Joel, chapter 3. Go to the book of Joel, chapter 3, and look at verses 1 and 2. Joel, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So here we see, God says, in those days, and at that time, it's, remember, when we see these terms, it's talking about the very, very end 
Uh, remember, the, the church age is going to come to a close. He's going to gather his bride to be with him. He's going to finish the last seven-year period from Daniel 9's prophecy, verses 20 through 27, of the 77's decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. All of those, 69 of those, were already fulfilled right to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But then they were put on hold. They've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel is going to be saved at the end of the tribulation period. There's one seven-year period left. And when that's over, that's when he's going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And we see it here. And at that time, he's going to judge all the nations according to how they treated Israel. There's a quick aside. Many of us have been taught over the years that Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats was tied to the church. It's not. Yes, the Bible does teach us that he wants us to visit people in prison and give water to the thirsty and food and take care of people that are in need. But in Matthew 25, if you look at verse 31 and following, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne. So if he's coming in glory and then is going to sit on the throne, where's the throne? It's here. And then he's going to gather all the nations and judge them according to how they treated these brothers of mine. According to Joel chapter 3, when he gathers the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat and judges them, who's he treating them, judging them according to how they treated? Israel. It's very, very clear. So we've got to understand that for years, because people have been taught that the church has replaced Israel and God's done with Israel, they tried to read all these end time passages and how they applied to the church, and they don't. The, gather, the sheep and the goats is at the end of the tribulation period, and this is how God determines which of the humans that survive the tribulation period get to live in the millennial kingdom. By the way, do you get to heaven because you gave someone water or you fed someone you know, food or visit them in prison? That's how they were to enter the kingdom. But that's not how we're saved. But they're given righteousness to be able to enter the kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus comes to rule and reign according to how they treated Israel. You're going to see how important that is and where we're going later tonight in our section in Ezekiel 16. So keep in mind. But we see here, he says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Look at verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 3. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the, from the Lord... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Yes, ma'am. Both of my, my translations are saying I will restore the, the captivity and the captivity. Yeah, it, in what, when it, some of the translations say, I'll bring them back into captivity. In other words, he, he'll take them out of the captivity, return from the captivity, is what he's talking about. There are some translations that use that term captivity, and this is what it's referring to. He's gonna, he took them out of the land because of their sin and brought them into captivity. He's going to return them from the captivity and restore their fortunes. All right? And so you're going to see that again in a lot of places like that. But here again, he says he's going to take Israel, bring them back into the land. Now, let me make a quick little aside. I've touched on this before, remind you of this. 1948 is awesome. I thank God for the fact that in 1948, the na nation of Israel became a nation again. But it's not the fulfillment of all these prophecies, because as you're going to see, as we continue to read them, it's going to be in that day and at those times and at the same time, it says he's going to bring them into the land, never, ever to be brought out of it again. 1948 is great because the nation of Israel became a nation again. 
That made it possible for all the prophecies about the Antichrist coming and stepping into the temple, going after the Jews and chasing them out of the land. Well, that wouldn't have been possible unless the Jews were back in the land. 1948 made it possible for all the end time prophecies to happen. Listen, they're not the fulfillment of all these things we're reading. Yeah, they're back in the land right now. But if you remember from our study of Revelation and others passages, what's going to happen to him when the Antichrist declares himself to be God and steps into the temple? What's he going to do after the Jews? Two-thirds of them are going to be killed, and then the other third is going to run out into the wilderness. They're going to run out in the wilderness and be chased by the Antichrist and Satan, and God's going to protect them there. All right, go to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. Jeremiah 30, verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall rebuilt on it, be rebuilt on its mound, and the place shall stand where it used to be. Again, very literal. It's going to happen in the land. A lot of people say the millennial kingdom is not actually literally going to be on the earth. Yes, it is. Look closely again. I will restore the fortunes in the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Go to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Back up one book. Jeremiah 29. Look at verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you hope, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Again, God said, I'm going to restore your fortunes. Oh, but wait, there's more. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. Look at Jeremiah 32, verses 42 through 44. Jeremiah 32, verse 42. For thus says the Lord. By the way, has anybody caught that each of these passages start with, by the way, God saying this? Isn't it interesting how many Christians are saying it's not going to happen? That's referring to the church. But God has said every single time, by the way, before he makes these statements, I'm saying this. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in the land of which you are saying it's a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of uh, Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shepelah and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Where we saw in Ezekiel 16, God says I'm going to restore Israel's fortunes. It's not the only time he said it. But wait, there's more. Go to Jeremiah 33. Look at verses 7 through 11. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a, a, a name of joy and a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Has this happened yet? Obviously, no. 
They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as, the bride, as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. But wait, there's more. Go to Amos chapter 9. We're about to lose some. Some are getting weary, and some don't know where Amos is. Look at Amos chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 15. In that day, Amos chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Do you see it? Oh, but keep reading. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God." You got the idea? But there's more. Go to Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. And I'm not giving you all of them. I'm just giving you just some. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Look at verses, verse 7 and chapter 3, verse 20. Zephaniah 2, 7 and 3, 20. Zephaniah 2, 7 says, the, seasons, sorry, the sea coast shall become a possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Chapter 3, verse 20. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Do you think God's trying to say something, folks? He's going to restore Israel to their former glory in the last days at the end of the tribulation period. When he comes and sets up his kingdom on this earth, it's going to be rebuilt here on the earth. And he says over and over, I'll restore your fortunes. I'll give you one more. Go to Ezekiel 39. Go to Ezekiel 39. Some of you can come back with us now because... You at least know where Ezekiel is. You've been in it for this study. Chapter 39, verses 25 through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. Has that happened yet? Of course not. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. 
And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. All right, folks, for years we've been taught that the house of Israel now is the church. We just read here that um, he's, he's been hiding his face from the house of Israel. Is he doing that to the church? No. No, the church has not replaced Israel. We've been grafted into God's plan for Israel. We've been given the promises that our future going to be Israel's, but they're ours now. Why? Do you remember? To make Israel jealous, the Bible says. He said that way back in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. You're going to go after gods that aren't gods to make me jealous? I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people, the Gentiles, to make you jealous. And so we see, go back to Ezekiel 16. God said, I'm going to restore your fortunes in the midst of all the nations around you. Do you think he meant it? Okay, good, because if he said no, I was going to read that whole list all over again. All right. But when is this going to happen? We saw some clues in, that, in those times and in that, at that day, but the Bible actually tells us exactly when this is going to happen. It, it's in Acts. I told you to go to Ezekiel. I'm sorry. Go to Acts chapter 3. It's in the book of Acts. The Bible actually tells us exactly when that's going to happen. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Peter's preaching. Remember, he's preaching full of the Spirit because Peter had not been to a class to learn all this stuff. If you remember, whenever Peter answered a question, how often did he get it right? We have one time that we know of the only other time he somewhat got it right is when the, Jesus turned to the disciples, the twelve, after a bunch of his disciples had just left because he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part. And upon hearing that, many of his disciples stopped following him. He turned to the twelve and said, you guys are free to go too. Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, he didn't understand them, but he at least knew. So there's probably two times in all the times that Peter got it right. Most of the time he got it wrong. Where did Peter learn what he's about to say? Actually, you're going to find the Spirit of God was just preaching through him. And listen to what it says. He says in verse 17, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring the things, all the things about which the God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. All that stuff we just read is going to happen when? According to this, when Jesus comes back to the earth. That's when the restoring of the fortunes of Jerusalem and Israel and city of, uh, the, the area of Judah is all going to be restored. But don't miss what he said there whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets. Go back to Ezekiel 16, and you remember, he doesn't here say just that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. Actually, our passage started, verse 53, with, I will restore the fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I'll restore your fortunes in their midst, so, like I touched on, Samaria is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. Sodom is the nation that was judged that we know in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God bombing them with fire because of their sin. But God says, I'm going to restore not only your fortunes, Judah, but I'm going to restore 
the fortunes of Samaria and Sodom. Now, this is very important. The Bible tells us why Sodom is included, and I'm going to show you that in just a bit. But I want you to see, first off, that the prophecies don't just speak of Israel's fortunes being restored. There are certain nations that the Bible says their, their fortunes are going to be restored at that same time. You're also going to see some, the prophecy says other nations won't be, but certain nations around Israel will be. So go with me to Jeremiah chapter 48. This is something, by the way, that most Christians don't fully understand. So take the time to let this sink in for a minute. And I want you to see this. Because we've all believed that God's going to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah. We've been reading that for years. But not many people really understand that He's going to restore the fortunes of the nations around them. But not all of them. And why some of them and not all of them, the Bible actually tells us. And we'll get to that in just a second. In uh, Jeremiah 48, verse 47, we'll start there. It says, yet I will restore the fortunes of who? Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. But remember, the Moabites and the Ammonites came from Lot's sin. Remember how Lot left when God told him to get out? And his wife, unfortunately, looked back and she died. And he made it into the mountains with his daughters. They got him drunk because they didn't have any man to make babies with. And they thought, well, we got to do something. They got their father drunk, and they had, he slept with his daughters because he didn't know what was going on. And Moab and Ammon, Ammon, enemies of Israel, came from Lot with his daughters. Ruth was a Moabite. But here it says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days too. It's not just Israel. It's pretty cool when we let the Scripture speak. Why? Go to chapter 49, though, and look at verse 6. 49 verse 6, but afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Oh, you've already seen this. Didn't God say through Ezekiel, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Samaria and Sodom? Where did the Moabites and the, and the Ammonites come from? From Sodom, because of Lot and his family and his daughters who were in that area when they escaped. Oh, by the way, if you kept reading, you see the judgment on Edom? You're going to find, if you kept reading that whole section, we don't have a time to do it, you're going to find that Edom will not be restored. You're going to see as you keep reading there in chapter 49, the judgment on Damascus. Damascus won't be restored at that time. Neither will Kedar or Hazor. Look at verse 33. Hazor shall become a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. No man shall dwell there. No man shall, uh, shall sojourn in her. There are passages where the scripture says these nations are going to be destroyed, never to be rebuilt, never to be restored. But Moab and Ammon, well, actually look at chapter 49, verse 39. We see the judgment on Elam. But in the latter days, verse 39 of 49, in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam declares the Lord. So when God comes back and Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth and he restores the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah and the Israelites in the north, the northern kingdom, he's also going to be restoring the fortunes of the nations around, certain ones. Then why? Why not just restore everything? Why certain nations and other nations? No. The Bible actually tells us. Go to Jeremiah chapter 12. 
way, way back earlier in this book of Jeremiah, God actually spoke a prophecy about this. And the answer is in chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Remember, when he comes back, he's going to gather all the nations and judge them according to how they treated Israel. And because they divided their land. All right. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land. I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. So the nations around, when God restores the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah and the Israelites in the land, how do they get to be a part of the restoration and the restoring of their fortunes? By turning to the God of Israel, like Nineveh. If they will, just like they led the Israelites to go turn to the Baals, if they will turn with Israel to God, he'll restore them too. Remember back on one of the prophecies we just read earlier tonight about restoring the fortunes, and he said, in all the nations that swear by my name. Yes, he's going to restore Jerusalem and Israel, but he's also offering his grace to all the nations who will turn to him. All the nations who will turn to him. By the way, we in America have been a part of telling Israel to divide the land, have we not? doesn't matter which president, what side of the aisle you're on. We've been telling them, divide the land for peace. The Bible says God's going to judge with every nation that divided his land. But if we as a people will turn to God in the last days, when he comes and does all this, even America will be spared and restored. But it's up to the people at that time. It's not up to us. We ain't going to be here. We're coming back when he sets it up. But at that time, the people that are left in America will help. If America still even exists at that time will be another question. But that's another message for another time. Go back to Ezekiel 16, verses 53 through 58. There's something else here I really want you to see. It says, when God restores Israel to her former state in the midst of the nations around her, he said he's going to do it so that she may bear her disgrace and be ashamed of all that she has done. Isn't that an interesting statement? I want you to read it. Look at verse uh, 54. Uh, right after he said, I'm going to restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, and becoming a consolation to them, meaning the nations around you. Why would God say to them, when I restore your fortunes, I'm doing it so that you would be ashamed of all that you've done, and be a consolation to the nations around you. Well, the short answer, and then I'll explain it in more detail. The short answer is, God is showing them that his, their, his future salvation will be purely because of His grace. In other words, when He does this, it won't be for a second that any of them will think it's because we're the people of God. It's going to be because... He did this. And let me explain why the passage is saying this. If you remember, as we read a little bit further, look at verse uh, 61. Actually, I'll back up. Go to, we'll look at 55 first. 
It says, As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, they shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Then he says, Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? In other words, when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, what was the attitude of the nation of Israel toward the Sodom and Gomorrah folks? They deserved it. We're better than them. God judged them. We're God's favorites. They deserved it. We'll keep reading. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you've become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines and those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. Because the attitude of the Jews toward the Sodomites would be simply this. Man, they, were, they deserved it. God was right in judging them. And if he restores them, that's simply because God's just that good. Is it because they deserve it or because they've earned it? No. But then all of a sudden, God said, now your wickedness was uncovered in front of the nations around you. And you've become a byword to the nations around you. And they've kind of, if you remember some of the prophecies and some of the stories in the Bible about when the nation of Israel is taken into captivity, their, their captors would say to them, why don't you sing some of your songs of Zion that we used to hear you sing all the time? And now that you're in Babylon, why don't you go ahead and sing some of your, how great it is to be in the land. You're not in the land anymore. You've been judged by your God. You're wicked. God has done that, and he's, he likes us. All the stuff they thought toward, toward Sodom and the other nations now is happening to them. He reminds them of how they looked down with contempt on Sodom and God judged them, but now they've become just as despised by Syria and the Philistines since God was judging them. But when they all get restored together in the millennial kingdom, it will be obvious to all of them that they were restored because of the grace of God, not because of them. I'm going to do this so that you'll be ashamed and that you'll realize you're only there because of me. Because of me. By the way, I sure hope those of us who have been grafted into God's plan for Israel, I hope we have that same heart. I hope we all realize it's but by His grace that we're saved. Unfortunately, I've been a pastor for too long and dealt with so many church members over the years that forgot that they were saved by the grace of God. Because what happens to us is, is we start thinking we're more than we really are. And we start looking down on those who are outside of the kingdom of God. And we judge those who are living so worldly. And we think about the wickedness of this world. Just today I had the privilege of spending uh, time in Orlando with pastors from three or four different churches as we all got together and just studied a small section of scripture. And as we were in 1 Timothy at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul was dealing with these ones who had been, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were teaching false teaching, and they were taught not to blaspheme. Yet, right before that, Paul shared his story about how God had done a work in his life, the worst of sinners. I mean, was there somebody that was a worse blasphemer than Paul? And God said, God did a work, in, I mean, Paul said, God did a work in my life. These guys are going to have to be dealt with to be taught not to blaspheme. But then he goes into chapter 2 and he says, pray for them. Pray for them. His attitude toward them was, if God could do that work in my life, he can still do that work in their life, and I pray that he will. Whether they respond or not, it's between them and God. And folks, I want to challenge you to be reminded on a daily basis that you've been saved by the grace of God. And some of us have been saved so long, we forgot 
who we were before he saved us. And when we find ourselves looking down on those who are outside of Christ, we might need to be reminded that the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. So the Bible says, one, the law of God demanded perfection. And if you broke one commandment, you're guilty as if you broke them all. There was a story in the Bible where Jesus goes into this uh, one Pharisee's house and a woman who was a woman of ill repute came in and just started worshiping Jesus and crying on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee thought to himself, if this man really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman was touching him. Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said to him, uh, Simon, let me ask you a question. He said, two people were forgiven a debt. One was forgiven a great debt. The other was forgiven a small debt. Which one's going to love him more, the master more that forgave them? And the guy says, well, the one who had the greater debt. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly, because those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven little love little. But didn't we just agree that James 2.10 says that if you're able to keep the whole law, you stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all? So is there anybody that's been forgiven more than anybody else, according to the Scriptures? Then what was Jesus saying then when he said, those who've been forgiven much love much, those who've been forgiven little love little? Listen to what he was saying. Those who realize they've been forgiven much love much. Those who think they've only been forgiven a little love little. We've dealt with too many, in my ministry, I've dealt with too many people in churches that will tell you they're saved, but they really don't think God saved them from much because they've been a pretty good person most of their life. And they look down on those who need the grace of God just as much as they do. And so in that day that God restores the fortunes of Israel and the nations around that turn to him, they'll all acknowledge it's simply because of him. That's all. It's because of him. Oh, but it gets even better. You see, the, when the surrounding nations see that God had judged Israel just like he judged them, they'll be consoled. Didn't you see how it said you'll be a consolation to them as well? He was hard on them, and he was hard on the Israelites, and he saved them all who turned to him in faith. But look at Ezekiel 16, verses 59 through 63. I want to take the rest of our time tonight to share this with you because God showed me something in this study that I'd never seen before, and I have been waiting and chomping at the bit to get there, and we won't get there till the very, very end, so stay awake until that time, all right? <clears throat> Look at Ezekiel 16, verses 59 to the end of the chapter. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you, I will, sorry, not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never again open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. God says that the reason he'll restore Israel's fortunes is because of the covenant or the promise that he made to the nation of Israel when they were young. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 12. I want to remind you of some promises that God made to Abraham and then his offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 7. 
says, now the Lord, I, I put it in my Bible, had said to Abram, because at this point it's a reminder of Abram's call. Abram said to, uh, sorry, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God makes a promise to Abram that to his offspring he would give what? That land, the land of Canaan. Go to chapter 15. Look at verses 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So God made a covenant that day. He made a promise. I'm going to give your descendants what? This land. And he lists all the nations that are living there at that time. Actually, a bunch of the nations, not exactly all, but most of the nations that were living there. Go to chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, plural, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give, now he even clarifies it, to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So here we see that just three times God had made a promise to Abraham that to him and to all his descendants, he's going to give him the land of Israel. We know it as now at the time it was the land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to you as an everlasting possession. I'm going to make a covenant with you. That word covenant's important because on God's eyes, when he says, I'm making a covenant with you, he ain't going to break it. Unfortunately, most of us don't realize that the marriage is supposed to be a marriage covenant. Till death do us part. And unfortunately, we're forgetting that. But here he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to give you this land and all your descendants as an everlasting possession. Now, what did God do when they were disobedient? He took them out of the land. Why is he ever going to bring them back? Because he made a covenant. You see what he said back there in Ezekiel? I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you 
an everlasting covenant. He says, now I want to start and establish an everlasting covenant, a different one. You see, because he goes there in verse 53, For thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. What covenant did they break? Because there was nothing, no promise on their standpoint when it came to the land. What was the covenant they broke? Okay, but which covenant was that? Because he makes a bunch of covenants, a bunch of promises. No, he didn't break. They didn't break the Abrahamic covenant because Abrahamic covenant's all on God's side. I'm going to give you this land. What's the covenant that they broke? See, because the covenant is, if they break a covenant, they've made a promise that they didn't keep. What was the covenant they broke? The covenant, the Mosaic covenant in the wilderness, when the nation of Israel was brought into the wilderness, God set up the Mosaic covenant. God says, I'm going to set up for you one mountain that represents this and one mountain that represents this. There's blessing and cursing. And here are my commandments. And if you do what I say, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. And they make made a covenant with God. All the, I'm not going to take the time to take you there, but they literally said there, all the words of this covenant we will keep. How'd they do? Thank God my salvation isn't tied to how good I do. So God says, look, I'm going to deal with you, you guys who broke the oath of your covenant. I'm going to remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, the promise to bring you back to this land and to give it to you as an everlasting possession. And I'm going to establish with you now an everlasting covenant, which isn't tied to you at all. It's all me. Remember, the land promise was all God. I'm going to do this. The everlasting covenant, he says, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So if God is telling Israel at this time that Ezekiel speaking to them, I'm going to in the future establish an everlasting covenant with you. Has he done it yet? Right. He hasn't. He's established the covenant, but not with Israel yet. This covenant's been set in place. We've been partakers of it. But with Israel, it's going to be when they receive it. So look at what he says again in verse 62. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then, of course, it says at the end, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. So this covenant is only possible because of God's covering their sin. When I atone for you for all that you've done, declares the Lord. In other words, remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How are we righteous? Totally because he atoned for our sin. He took the, He's the one who fulfilled the law. That's why Jesus had to come. He was God, but he also a man. And he fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He kept the law of God perfectly, yet then he was punished for the sins of mankind. And he was the one who was able to fulfill it. And because of that, this covenant, this everlasting covenant, is now available to Israel. It's available to, to Jews right now. They can be a part of the church. They're experiencing a hardening in part. Some Jews are being saved, but mostly it's Gentiles. But when he's done with us, he's going to establish this everlasting covenant. Um, don't miss this, folks. God always remembers his covenants, and he looks to his promises to display his grace. I'm going to say this to you again, and I want you to hear it. God always looks to his covenants and his promises to demonstrate his grace. 
Do you want the grace of God? Then you better know what his promises are. Because if you'll believe his promises and receive his promises by faith, you will receive the grace of God. For example, as our pastor preached on this Sunday, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that we're to make our request, and we're not to be anxious about anything, but we're to make our requests with thanksgiving and our supplications to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will be guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. He's made us a wonderful promise there. But what do we got to do? It's there. We need to receive it by faith. Lord, you said that if I would give this to you, you would give me peace. I believe it. I'm claiming your promise today. Here's my situation. I want your peace. Let me just share with you. My, my daughter, Nicole, the Sunday before we even got to that passage, was sitting in that same sanctuary, and God spoke to her as she was reading ahead. I know you're not supposed to read ahead, but she read ahead because the pastor wasn't preaching on those two verses yet. But she said that she was wrestling with these issues in her life. God spoke to her and said, Nicole, your situation, your questions that you have, your issues that you're anxious about, they're not settled when you get an answer. They're settled when you get peace. Don't most of us just want an answer? And God says, sometimes I'm not going to give an answer, but I promise you peace. You want God's grace? You go to his promises and you receive his promises. So in the time we have left, let's go on a real fast look at God saying what he would do. Ezekiel, go to 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Look at verses 15 through 28. Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. By the way, that's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. And all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them to one another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that's in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you are right are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among them, Sorry, among which they have gone, and I'll gather them from all around and bring them into their own land, and I will make them in one nation into, in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms, and they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be prince, their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Still future, but it's coming. Isaiah 59. Go to Isaiah chapter 59. Look at verses 14 through 21. Isaiah 59, verse 14. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation in his hand. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turns from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your, out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that going to be a cool day? When the Bible actually says in another place, at that time there won't need to be any teachers because everyone will know the Lord. From the least to the greatest. They're all going to know the Lord. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. So I better preach while I still have a job. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8. Look at verses 6 through 13. The Hebrew writer says, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That's the Mosaic covenant. If you'll do this, then I'll do that. that. That one fell apart because of us. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me just say something to you folks. I'm sure that you still struggle with that same temptation that I still, and that's I try to earn God's approval through doing good things. Anybody struggle with that still? Thinking if I do good things, he'll like me better today? That's the old covenant, folks, that was helpless and worthless because of our sin and our flesh. It ain't going to get you there. That's why he said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And the fact that he says, I'm going to make a new covenant, means the other one wasn't any good anymore. And it's vanishing and going away. There are some people still trying to earn God's approval through the law. But one day, for those of us who have received it already, this new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, hopefully we realize it's by him and his grace alone that we're saved and not by how good we've been. Go ahead, Zach. Mm -hmm. <coughs> How are they, rewarded? they get to live. Seriously, they get to live in the millennial kingdom.
But they're still going to have to choose. They're still going to have to choose because at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan's going to be released from the pit. Remember, he's going to be bound for a thousand years. He's going to be released and he's going to come and tempt all the people on the earth. Well, he won't be able to tempt us. We'll be in our new heavenly bodies and all that kind of stuff. But he'll tempt all the humans that had lived during the millennial kingdom and the babies that have been born during that time. There'll be a lot of folks because during a thousand years, people are going to live. They said in that passage, Isaiah 65 says, if someone dies at 100, they'll be considered like a baby. All right. They're going to live a long, long time. And so during that time, there's going to be a lot of people. So how how are they blessed? They're allowed to enter the kingdom, the ones who survived the tribulation period. So here's what I want to show you as we close tonight. Remember last week's study. Remember how God over and over and over called Israel a whore, an immoral woman, a prostitute. Go with me to Jeremiah 31. We're going to close tonight with Jeremiah 31. I have a radio program that I've been doing for about 13 years, and we go through books of the Bible. And right now, if you follow my radio program, we're in the book of Jeremiah. And I was recording radio programs for weeks down the road, and I got to Jeremiah 31, and I saw something in Jeremiah 31 that I've never, ever seen before. And I can't wait to show you. I've been waiting all night to get here. And thank the Lord we made it. <laughs> Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 4, the first part of verse 4. At that time, that's remember when Jesus comes back. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace where? Oh, remember they're going to run out into the wilderness? They serve, at that time, they're going to find grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. What? Oh, he doesn't just say Israel, does he? Oh, virgin Israel. Do you see it? When he comes back and redeems the Israelites that are left. And he saves them. And he gives them this everlasting covenant. And he brings them back into the land. He will see them as a virgin. I hope you got this. Do you understand how God sees us now? We've been given this covenant that is for Israel, that he promised Israel long before the church came into being. God knew there was going to be a church age, but before we even showed up on the scene, he had made all these promises to Israel. I'm doing this work in you, and I'm going to remove you from the land because of your sin. But someday, I'm going to bring you back in from all the places I've scattered you, and I'm going to bring you back into the land never to be uprooted, and I'm going to bring you back in and bless you and restore your fortunes. And anybody that wants to join in on my blessing on you, they get to be a part of it too. And when that day comes, I won't see you as a prostitute or a whore anymore. I will see you as a virgin. Because I will have washed you clean. We, in this age that God is just by His grace saving us Gentiles and a few Jews here and there, in the church age, to make Israel jealous, this time period that's coming to a close he has given us those promises now. He told them in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following, In that day, I'm going to erase your sin, put my spirit within you, and move you to follow my decrees. That's ours now. In the church, we have been forgiven of all our sins. When we get saved, what does he do? He puts his spirit within us, and he's the one who moves us to follow his decrees. We don't have to try to do it. 
Folks, stop trying to live for Jesus. I want you to hear me. Let me say this again. Stop trying to live for Jesus. I'm going to say it again because some of you think I'm a heretic and I'm having fun watching your faces. Stop <laughs> trying to live for Jesus and believe that the Jesus who began the good work in you will finish what he started. The God who is the author of your faith is also the finisher of your faith. The one who began the good work in you is the one where Paul says, I'm confident that he's able and he will finish it. The one, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For it's God who works in us both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do you believe that he said that when Israel is saved at the end, he's going to give them salvation and wash their sin and put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees? Do you believe it? That's yours now. That's mine now. But daily... We receive his grace by believing his promises. God gives grace to the humble. So I say to you, stop trying to live for Jesus. Get up every day believing that Jesus who lives within you is going to fulfill his promises and he'll do his work and watch how you change and you don't even work at it. I'm going to ask you for your sake and for your wife's sake and your husband's sakes and your children's sake that you stop trying to be a good Christian and believe that Jesus will do it because he sees you as a virgin. Isn't that cool? You've been washed clean. Come back next week. We'll take a look at chapter 17. Thanks for coming. <laughs>